What does glory look like? What does glory look like? Maybe just for a moment, close your eyes and just try to imagine, kind of picture something in your mind. What does glory look like? I bet for many of us, uh, we may have some kind of image of a bright light or, or some kind of bright flash of something that comes to mind. Um, as a kid, I always pictured glitter falling from the sky for some reason. Maybe that's just because it sounds like the word glory, glory and glitter. I don't know, but that's always what I imagined. Uh, you know, that when it talks about Jesus' glory, I kind of just imagine Jesus walking around and kind of throwing glitter around. I, I don't know what that means. Um, and glitter's shiny as well, right? That, that might be one way of imagining it. Or maybe you pictured something like the glorious sight of Mount Rainier after weeks of it being shrouded by the clouds. Um, I've, I've had this experience often whenever I am, am driving here. I'm, I'm facing the south. I'm on the way on, on I-5. And every now and then, uh, the, the clouds have cleared and Mount Rainier is there in, in the distance. And, and especially at times, the sun can just hit it just right and gleam off of some of those glaciers at the top of it. It's magnificent. It's glorious, right? Or, or maybe some of you pictured, you know, that winning touchdown moment and, and the, the hands of the football player going up. You know, that is a moment of glory, of, of victory, right? Maybe that's what glory looks like to you. So whether you thought of something bright and shiny, something big and majestic, or something great and victorious, all of these things are huge public moments. And I think that's how we often think of glory. Some public display, some, some great spectacle. The dictionary definition, I looked this up, the dictionary definition of glory is high renown and honor won by notable achievements. Okay, that's the dictionary definition. So the one with the most glory is the one with the most honor, the most fame, the most renowned, the one who's most well-known. And I think that this may be an accurate definition of glory, the way that we often use it. But our passage today might have something else to say about glory. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up to John chapter 2. John chapter 2 is where we're going to be. Um, and I do encourage you, if you have a Bible on your phone, if you have one next to you, or if there's one in the seat, grab it, because uh, we're going to be looking through this together today. Now, last week, we began a new series looking at the signs that Jesus does throughout the Gospel of John. And we noticed that while Matthew, Mark, and Luke call these various things that Jesus does, miracles, wonders, healings, mighty acts, that John consistently calls them signs. And, and we said that that's actually really significant, that he calls them signs, because signs are not an end in themselves. They're meant to point us somewhere. For example, this morning, as you came to the Church of Christ at Federal Way, you didn't go plop down next to the sign outside. You came in to the building that the sign was telling you about, right? This is what signs are meant for. They point us somewhere. And just the same way, these signs in the Gospel of John are not an end in themselves, but are meant to point us to Jesus, to lead us into greater knowledge of who he is, and who we are in him. 
And so that's a lot of what we talked about last week. We looked at the beginning verses of John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, and we saw that John makes it really clear from the start that Jesus is God and that we respond to him by believing in him or trusting in him, as we talked about. And we read that the word who was God became flesh, lived among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. So that's a lot of what we talked about last week. This week, we're going to see how it is that he began to live among us. And we're going to get a glimpse of a little bit of what that glory looks like in his first sign. So let's read together. Chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding, and when the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what concern is that to you and to me? My hour has not yet come. And his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. So now standing there were six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to them, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the chief steward. So they took it. And when the steward tasted the water that had become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn it out knew. The steward called the bridegroom, and he said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and then the inferior wine after the guests have become drunk. But you have kept the good wine until now. Jesus did this, the first of his signs, in Cana of Galilee, and revealed his glory. And his disciples believed in him. This is the word of God for the people of God. Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word that we dwell in together and that we invite to dwell in us. God, thank you for these signs that point us to you, that draw us nearer into who you are and who you are calling us to be. God, I pray that as we consider these words and this story this morning, that you would sharpen our minds and soften our hearts, that we might know you and love you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So Jesus did this, the first of his signs, and revealed his glory, and the disciples believed in him. And so again, through this story that we've just read, John makes it really clear, right, that Jesus is God, and the response to him is to believe in him. Through this first sign, Jesus reveals his glory. But what does that glory look like? What does glory look like? I want to walk back through the story together and just ask some questions along the way to dig deeper into what's going on here. So the first question that I want to ask is, where are they 
in this story. Where does this happen? Right? It tells us in the very first couple of verses. They're at a wedding. There was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. The mother of Jesus was there. Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. And I think what we see from this is that Jesus lived a really ordinary life. He grew up among family and friends who he knew and who knew him. He grew up in a community that uh, participated in celebrations together, whether it was Jewish festivals, maybe neighborhood kids' birthday parties, family weddings. Jesus lived a full life, and he lived it well. You see, John makes it really clear that Jesus is God from the start of his gospel. The Word was in the beginning, and the Word was God. And this is true. And yet, sometimes we forget the profound and simple mystery that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us and lived among us. So yes, Jesus is God, but he doesn't glow, right? He doesn't just float around on a cloud. He wasn't like so many of the Jesus movies that portray him sort of distant-eyed, sort of staring off kind of past you and through you ghost-like. That's not Jesus. He lived a full and an ordinary life where he was known enough to be invited to a wedding party and where he was human enough to say yes and go. He celebrated with his friends. Jesus lived an ordinary life, but it was by no means a boring one, right? His life is filled with celebration and filled with fun. Jesus smiled and laughed. Jesus ate food and drank wine. Throughout the Gospels, we see that Jesus is often invited to dinner parties and to celebrations. He's invited so much that he's accused of being a glutton and a drunkard. Jesus was invited to these places. Why? Because he himself was full of life. Who do you want to invite to a party, right? You want someone who's going to bring some life to that party. I think Jesus was this kind of person. He was a person who was filled with life, and that life is contagious. It's the kind of life that you just want to be around. And I wonder if the world would say the same thing about us. Or are we so religious that maybe we've lost that kind of life in us? I think sometimes in our attempts to follow Jesus, we've actually become much more religious than he is. So as we live our lives, I hope that we can be among the disciples who were invited to the wedding feast with Jesus, right? May we live not as gluttons and drunkards, but as people who are full of life, who eats and drink and celebrate. I pray that we can be people who are filled with a life that is contagious, that spreads to the people around us, life that ultimately points people to Jesus, who is himself the way, the truth, and the life. So this is what we see of Jesus. He is full of life. So Jesus and his disciples are at the wedding celebration, right? And Jewish wedding celebrations are no joke. They're 
elaborate. They're intense. Now, we have some pretty elaborate weddings these days. You know, there, there are whole TV shows devoted to, you know, Bridezilla, I think, is a thing where just things get over the top. There are huge weddings that cost tens of thousands of dollars for a single day. But Jewish weddings were not just a single day. They often lasted a week. They were a whole festival. And they were the kind of thing where it was very possible that you might run out of wine. Somewhere in the middle of it, they ran out of wine. That is exactly what happened. So in verse 3, it says, When the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Now, I don't know whether she's just informing him of this, they're out of wine, or if she's asking him to do something about it. But by judging his response, it seems like she's asking him to do something about it. And as I read this week, there's some speculation about the possibility that maybe this was a family member's wedding and Mary had something to do with the organizing and taking care of things. So maybe that's why she was concerned about the wine running out. Or maybe she's just a kind participant in the wedding and wants Jesus to do something about it because she wants to save the host's embarrassment of running out of provisions for the people who were there. Whatever it would be, regardless of the speculation, Jesus' response to her in verse 4 is, what concern is that to you and to me? My hour has not yet come. And so the question I want to ask here is, why, why this exchange? Why does this happen? What does Jesus mean when he says, my hour has not yet come? And and the thing is, is Jesus actually does something like this several times throughout the Gospel of John. Here, his mother seems to ask him to do something about the wine, and his response is, not yet. A little bit later in chapter 7, we have a story where Jesus' siblings come around him and encourage him to go to Judea, that he might become more well-known. You know, they give him a little PR advice. You know, go go to Judea. they'll, They'll get to know you there. You'll become more famous, right? And he says to them, my time has not yet come. He says, not yet. And then in chapter 11, again, Jesus receives a message asking him to come to Bethany because his friend Lazarus has fallen ill. And again, Jesus says, not yet. So why does Jesus keep doing this? Why does he keep saying, my hour has not yet come? Not yet yet. Well, Jesus is at this wedding, and as we have said, he's living a full life, right, filled with joy and celebration. Jesus is fully human, living a full life, but he is also fully God. Though Jesus lived a full life, he remained in tune with his Father. In each of these moments, Someone asks something of Jesus, and before he gives an answer, he essentially says, wait. So he can see what his father wants in that moment. Remember what Jesus will say later on in the Gospel of John. He says, the son only does what he sees the father doing. 
I think in each of these moments, when he says, not yet, he is waiting to see what the Father is doing in that moment before he acts. Even when his mother comes asking him, he waits for direction from his heavenly Father first. And again, I wonder what it is that we can learn from this exchange. Because I think that we're often either so eager to please people or so sure of our rules that we take action without any further thought. But what if we were people who, in ordinary moments throughout the day, paused to tune ourselves to God? What would happen if we paused to see what it was that our Heavenly Father is doing right then? And seeing it, we joined Him in that work. What would happen? Well, I think the world might just be transformed if we were courageous enough to do that. Our lives might just become signs pointing people to Christ declaring who it is that he is. And so this is one thing that I think we can learn from this exchange between Jesus and his mother. But there's something else that we can learn as well. Because while we do learn from what Jesus does in this exchange, I think many of us find ourselves much more in Mary's place in this story. How many of us have found ourselves in a place or have been in a place where we bring a need before God and all we seem to get back is, not yet. God, my child is sick. Not yet. God, my family doesn't know you. Not yet. God, I can't afford this month. Not yet. God, my heart is heavy, not yet. How hopeless can it feel when we bring our needs before God and all we seem to receive is not yet? We can grow tired, lose heart, lose hope. We can give up. And yet, how does Mary respond in this story, in this situation. In verse 5, she turns to the servants and tells them, do whatever he tells you. She doesn't give up. She doesn't throw her hands up and walk away. She waits and she trusts. Do whatever he tells you. She puts the situation in Jesus' hands and she trusts him to take care of it as he sees fit. And I think this is what we are called to as we bring our own needs before God. We put them in Jesus' hands and we wait and we trust him. So, What does Jesus do? What happens next? Well, he does something that doesn't really make any sense at all. Right? She said, the wine is out. 
And he says, my hour is not yet come. And so she says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. And he tells the servants to fill the jars with water and draw some out to bring to the chief steward. Now, there's a movie version of the Gospel of John that came out when I was young, and I remember watching it. And the way that they showed this part of the story was just great. Because they showed Jesus instructing the servants to fill the jars with water and then draw it out and serve it to the master of the ceremony. And in in this movie version, the servant just sort of blankly stares at Jesus. Do do what? Water? And then he kind of blinks and he claps. Okay, let's go. Let's do this. You know, like, here we go. This makes no sense. Um, And and just the the little bit that was communicated by that blank stare was, was just everything. It was so perfect. Because following Jesus can feel like that sometimes, right? Sometimes following Jesus just doesn't make any sense. Sometimes the call of the gospel doesn't make sense to us. Love your enemies. What? Turn the other cheek. Really? Give your things away with generosity. What? The least among you is the greatest. I think all of these kind of just draw a blank stare from a lot of us. Sometimes following Jesus doesn't make any sense. But I think Mary said it well. Do whatever he tells you. Now, I want to look a little bit more closely at what actually happens here. What did Jesus actually do? Right? I mean, was it as simple as ordering another round of drinks for everyone? I mean, that, that's great and all. But I think there's more going on here than just another round of drinks. I mentioned earlier that maybe Jesus' mother was asking him to do something about this because she was concerned about the embarrassment that it might cause the host. But the reality is that the consequences of running out of provisions for your guests is far more drastic in this culture than just embarrassment. Okay, the culture of that day, and even to this day, much of Eastern culture tends to revolve around honor and shame. Rather than in our culture, we tend to revolve more around innocence and guilt. Right? And these are wildly different ways of viewing the world and of finding your place in it. Because for us, running out of wine would be embarrassing, but you didn't do anything wrong, right? You're not guilty. But in this culture, for them, running out of provision for your guests is not only embarrassing, it's shameful. Especially at the joining of two families. I mean, the bridegroom and his family would have been in charge of providing the food for the celebration. And if they weren't able to, then the bride's family may very well have just called the wedding off and said, no, this isn't going to happen, right? The groom and his family could be marked for years to come as a family far too shameful to enter into relationship with because they couldn't provide. Now, I know this may seem strange or drastic to us, but that was the culture 
of the day. And I think understanding this reality shows us what it was that Jesus did here was far greater than just providing some wine for people who'd run out. Because he didn't just provide wine for the party. He saved this bridegroom and his family from shame. Furthermore, Jesus didn't just provide more wine. He provided the best wine, right? Jesus did not only save the bridegroom from shame. He actually transformed that shame into honor. Now, this is just what Jesus does. This is the gospel, right? Think of our dwelling passage that we just read, that he transforms our body of humiliation and conforms it to his body of glory. He transforms our shame into honor. He changes us from fallen sinners to glorified saints, from children of wrath to beloved children of God. This is gospel stuff that Jesus is up to here. And this is how Jesus reveals his glory. And so, what does that glory look like? Is it a bright flash and a grand display? Right? Remember our dictionary definition of glory, honor, fame, renown, the one who is known the most? But, but who here knows what Jesus did? Look at verse 9. The steward tasted the water that had become wine, and he did not know where it came from. The servants knew. It seems like his disciples knew. But the chief steward, the bridegroom, and the many other people at the celebration had no clue. And this is what true glory looks like. Listening to the Father and serving in the shadows. Jesus doesn't get up and wave his hands. He doesn't shout out and proclaim that the kingdom of God has come and that it's turning shame into honor. Rather, he quietly stays seated. He tells the servants to draw out some water. This is how Jesus reveals his glory. And this is how Jesus continues to reveal his glory today. We are his servants. And we are drawing out the simple water of our lives and trusting him to do the rest. And he does. He transforms our obedience into abundance and changes our shame into honor and blessing. And he does this through the hands of his servants. And this is what it means to be the church, to be the people among whom and through whom God changes shame into honor and reveals his glory. So in the final verse, verse 11, it says, Jesus did this, the first of his signs, and he revealed his glory. And his disciples believed in him. So what does it look like to believe in him?
I think it means to trust that with Jesus, good wine is on the way. When the wine gives out, good wine is on the way. When Jesus says not yet, the good wine is on the way. Whenever following him doesn't seem to make any sense at all, the good wine is on the way. And when all that we can see is our impending shame, the good wine is on the way. To believe in him means to be people who know this to be true. And therefore, we can become like him, people full of life, people who wait and watch to see what it is that God is doing, to become people who serve in the shadows, who help transform others' shame into honor. And so that's what I want to leave you with this week. What does it look like to be people who have seen his glory and who believe? What does it look like to be people whose shame has been transformed into honor through whom he reveals his glory? I pray that as we go from here, that we would be people who see his glory and show his glory wherever we go. May it be so.